you can work on your game your whole life. You can have a huge mustache, huge eyebrows. Maybe none of it helps. Maybe it does. I don't know. These are the tales of golf past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending historic rounds on and off course moments, memories of personal catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. I'm Jer. I'm Proy. I'm Joe. And I'm Megs. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the Lynx Stories. Hey, I'm Tim Scott, and today I'm going to be telling you about Alistair McKenzie. Huge stash, huge eyebrows, he was wearing a kilt, um, showing a little bit of knee, showing a little bit of knee, and uh, he had the high socks, the dress shoes on, also noticed that he had a knife in his socks, which was uh, interesting. <laughs> Like what? Do you, what's he using that for? Um, A sex icon, <laughs> cutting all the the perfect blades of grass at Augusta, just trimming yeah, exactly. to them. He's got his knife on hand. Not a pine shat out of place at that place. <laughs> right? Exactly. But this guy had a we'll sport get there. coat, sport coat, bow tie up top, and then down below he had the uh, shortcut. Shortcut skirt and the high socks, so you know he's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, yeah, let's start from the top. So, Alistair McKenzie, born in born in England, um, to some Scottish parents. Both his parents were Scottish. Um, I believe he was born in Leeds, England. Mm-hmm. So, so, if you don't know Leeds, I mean, it's been. It's become one of the best golf destinations. Um, And he may or may not have started that, but we'll get to that later. Um, As he was growing up, I mean, nothing exciting to note. He went to a grammar school to sharpen up that uh, Scottish. He went to Cambridge for undergrad. I think he did like. I think he did like three different undergrads. <laughs> uh, they took a long time. I mean, he started undergrad in like, I don't know, 18 something, 70 something. <laughs> he finally finished undergrad in like the late 18, oh, yeah. 1780s. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, it took a long time. It took like 12 years. That's right. That's right. <laughs> No, but he actually started, he started out as a surgeon, um, which is... Get out of town, no way. Yeah, very noble, uh, very smart, very smart guy. I mean, if you're a surgeon, like, that's probably, your life is probably pretty planned out at that point. He he graduated from undergrad, did some grad school, became a, a real surgeon, um... And then you all know what happened next. The Boer War. The Boer War. The Boer War. Um, and tell I us actually, about the Boer War. 
Yeah, well, I think most people know about it. But who are the major <laughs> players? Who are the major players? Uh, South Africa and uh, the UK. I don't think it was the UK at that time, but England. <laughs> they weren't Probably. united. It was just a kingdom. Yeah. Just the kingdom. The K. Just the K. Right. <laughs> um. So yeah, it was actually the second Boer War that he participated in. Um, first one, he was still at Cambridge with his 12-year undergrad. Uh, the second one, he was finally able to be a surgeon. So he was a surgeon for the, I believe he was on the South African side of that war, which is interesting. That's an interesting twist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, yeah, I mean, I didn't see it coming, but when I was looking this up, I was like, really? Like, okay. Yeah, so, um, you know, I don't think he got paid a lot, but as a surgeon, you probably normally would, but he went to the war, helped, helped, out, helped out at the Boer War, all that stuff. Later on, um, a couple years later, World War One happened. And uh, he's actually let me backtrack for a second because during the Boer War, um, the Boers, which he was a part of, got pretty into camouflage. Um, and I think that's it was trending. Shout out yeah, to Boers camouflage was trending. It was brand new. <laughs> um, Shout out Pumba. <laughs> <laughs> so it, during that during the Boer War he really got into camouflage um, and he actually like was he just wearing it all over the place like oh, he, he was wasn't wearing it he got into the, he got into the science of it and the uh, Boers I think that's I think he said that that's how they were successful in that war um, they were able to wear similar clothes to their natural surroundings. They're able to mask themselves in their natural surroundings. Um, so it was a huge advantage for the Boers. And the Boers won that war. Um, and McAllister, Alistair McKenzie, was... McAllister Alistair. was a huge part of that. And a big part of that was the camouflage. So he started to look into this camouflage thing a little bit more, and he got really into it, got into the science of it. Camouflage. Yeah, and he became a camouflage. Yes, Patrick, <laughs> exactly. Average <laughs> Joe's gymnasium. Total facial floor. <laughs> so he became what is now known as a camouflage. What that means is... Um, I mean, it's the study of camouflage. And it's making it the best. I mean, it's an esteemed. Yeah, Spike, you know career. about this. Yeah, it is. It it is even higher than a surgeon's career might be. Um, There's only a handful of camouflers in history. He's the only one that I know of, actually. <laughs> could be could be more, but can't find him. Ooh, <laughs> Ooh nice. <laughs> that was good. Um, so he got into camouflage, started wearing camouflage, his kilts were camouflage, 
Um, and then World War One happened, and he was like the main camouflage for his side. So the Mackenzie clan was actually royalty um, when he was growing up, so he was always a part of that. He golfed a little bit when he was younger, and he was a part of a couple of country clubs, I believe, up in... Uh, um, so he golfed. I think that... I think Alistair was never a great golfer, and that's what makes him interesting. Most golf course designers were golfers, and they were really good golfers. Um, Alistair was not. I think he said... I read something that he said, or someone else said, probably, that he was a very good putter, but not a good ball striker. And that's like the opposite of everybody. <laughs> opposite of... Have you ever met a, a good putter? Like, no. No one's no. a good putter. <laughs> Especially if you're not a good golfer. You can't be a good putter. Yeah. But anyways. So I think Alex was... Mediocre golfer. Um, he probably golfed growing up a little bit, part of the um, Mackenzie clan. Um, but uh, so where were we? We were at the uh, the World War, the camouflage, I believe. Yeah, the camouflage. He really pioneered the design of golf courses. He. Can you speak a little bit about his unique design? Yeah. Um, yeah, he had a, a unique design. Um, and I think a lot of it came from his study of camouflage. Um, his bunker placement was such that a lot of the bunkers were hidden from the tee box. Um, they were also pretty... The shape of the bunkers were pretty random, um, and up by the green, um, the bunkers were kind of obscure shapes, and they kind of they would kind of come into play where you would least expect it. Um, so that's, I mean, coming from a camouflage camouflage, or what do you say? <laughs> An experienced camouflage. A camouflage. I mean, once a camouflage, always a camouflage. And so he worked that into his golf course design. I mean, he had he had um, his greens were they were they started out narrow. <laughs> and they, were, they were pretty long. They were long and narrow, and they went <laughs> They went from, so they actually, the beginning of the green started at like the end of the fairway centered and then it would come up at an angle. Um, so it's just an interesting um, twist on a lot of his courses, like a signature piece with his greens. Um, the other thing was he wanted to make sure every course that he designed, <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's not that funny. <laughs> Every course that he designed, he wanted to, his main point was to design a course where all players can have peak interest in this course. 
Um, so he designed it for the 15 plus handicaps, the 5 to 15 handicaps, and the low handicaps. So whereas a 15 handicap, the course, the, the holes are fair enough where you can put it in the fairway, put it on the green or close to the green, and get a par. That was his thing. And then for the low handicaps, you know, like the, the tour pros, you have to, I mean, there's a lot of strategy that comes involved, like that's involved with it, but you really, you can score if you have strategy and you have skill. So I think he focused his golf courses on the common player and made it fun for them, made it interesting for them, but also made it scorable for the professional golfer. So that was a kind of a unique thing for his courses. The other unique thing for his courses um, was that he used the natural landscape um, to his advantage. Um, so, you know, like, for example, Augusta, um, I mean, that's a beautiful plot of land, Augusta National. Um, Mackenzie was around at the time where there's not a big, there's not a lot of land moving equipment, so you can't do much with the land, so he kind of took full advantage of the natural landscape in his in his uh, course design, which is kind of a cool aspect as well. A plot of land was from like an old Denmark baron who bought the land a long, long time ago, like a hundred years before him. Yeah, and he was actually... Um, Denmark baron. Yeah, I think he was from Denmark. So he took, I mean, he took such good care of this land. And... Little did he know it. I mean, the guy who owned the land would never know it, but I mean, it would become Augusta National. And he took such good care of this land that when they were building these fairways, building the layout, I mean, it's everything's perfect for them. So it's really, I don't know, they got pretty lucky with this piece of land. There's every, there's everything in this plot of land, <laughs> from the azaleas to the magnolias, you know. Um, I believe he partnered with what was his name? Cobb? Is that his name? Uh, someone Cobb. And, um, yeah, the Al Woodley, I think that, so Alistair kind of went off on his own at the beginning. He was young. He was just coming off the war. He was a surgeon. Ken Fleur. No golf course design. Not even a golfer. Um, so Alistair's first course that he worked on was at Al Woodley. Um, he was in without. He was in with that course um, before he designed it. Here, he was in with the people, um, so he was able to get a little bit of free reign on that course design. Um, and his stuff was pretty radical. I mean, normally, Scotland and English courses had flat greens, circular greens. Um, I mean, they're all mixed style courses, obviously. Um, so McAllister, or excuse me, Alistair, <laughs> I always say that. <laughs> the Pacificos so are doing their job. I mean, Alistair came in with the undulating greens. Um, he came in with a bunch of bunkers. He came in with some some pretty radical um, course design elements in, in, in their eyes. Um, 
And they opened the chorus. I mean, it was Al Woodley for two years before this other guy. Um, I believe his name was Henry Colt. Something Colt. Henry Colt, I believe. Mm. Um, and he was a uh, renowned golf course designer. <laughs> this chorus brought him in to, like, can you check on this Mackenzie guy? Like, is he, I mean, is he crazy? Like, look at our course. So Colt comes in. And he, he stays over at Alistair's house. Um, and he has a meeting with like the board members at Al Woodley. Um, and this whole time he's been talking to Alistair. And he's like, dang, I mean, all his ideas are exactly the ideas that I have. And so he loved it. And he told all the board members, like, yeah, this guy's good. Like, keep everything he's saying. Um, and actually, I think that relationship between between Henry Colt and Alistair um, became like a, a business part, partnership um, and they Ooh. started a golf course design firm um, and I'm not sure the other courses that they worked on exactly but they, they worked together on a few other courses so yeah I mean where did we go from there I think Colt I think Henry Colt and Alistair worked on several other courses um and Mackenzie was a was a lead designer on a lot of the like top ten, top a hundred courses that we know of today. Even um, he worked on Cypress Point in Monterey, um, which we'll probably touch on soon. Um, he worked on the Royal Melbourne in Australia, which is, I mean, top ten course in the world. Obviously, Augusta. Uh, so yeah, that was the beginning. I think the Al Woodley course design was the beginning of the Colt and McKenzie partnership. So when McKenzie started his, when he was just starting out on the golf course design, um, the ball they were playing with, I believe it was called the feather ball. Spike, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Um, the Harry. It was the Harry, and this Harry ball, it didn't roll, it didn't bounce. So you hit the golf ball, it just stops in the grass. Which, it just landed. It just landed, and that's something that, as if you have ever played golf, ever, you would, you would say, like, I mean, the ball has to land, and it has to bounce, and it has to roll. That's just what a ball does. Not the Harry. So somehow they were playing this ball in the 1920s that didn't do any of that, and it just. They're playing a Lego. <laughs> yeah, it's a Lego. Fucking Lego. <laughs> it just plants in the ground. Um. So about the time, about around that time, they switched to a different ball called the feather. And um, this ball bounced. It rolled. Um, so off the tee, you're not just landing the ball. I mean, you have to land the ball and then look at the course contour and see where it's going to go. So it affects your shot a lot. Um, and that's where Alistair came in as a camouflure. He was hiding all these bunkers, fairway bunkers, greenside bunkers, everything. And yeah, you might have been might, hiding in the bunker. <laughs> he might be hiding in the bunker. He's got that. He's got that dust, um, that dust-colored jacket on, and you can't even see him. Dust-colored kilt. Um, 
so yeah, it's just a different way to think about course design. Now you're landing the ball and you have to see where it rolls to. And his bunkers are hidden. His bunkers not, are now in play when otherwise it wouldn't have been in play. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, I mean, if you go from a ball that doesn't bounce a roll to a ball that does, it's a huge innovation in golf. And McKenzie was one of the first guys to mm. kind of take that into play and work it into his course design, which is kind of cool. Eventually he worked his way over to America. Um, and he lived in California for a long time. Um, and he worked on a lot of different courses all around the world. Um, at that time, I think golf course designers were not, um, they didn't get paid super well. I mean, there's no Instagram, there's no anything, there's no web internet that can tell you about a golf course. So I think the, the validation of a good golf course is how many people actually go and play it and keep going to play it. Um, and Alistair's course designs withstood that test of time, I would say. Um, so he came over to America. He designed Cypress Point in Monterey, which is a, probably a top 10 course in America. Um, I've never been there, but it's right on, it's like right by Pebble, right on Monterey Bay. It's like beautiful. Um, a lot of those holes are iconic holes that courses try to, duplicate still to this day um i think he i think that one was in nine in 1928 in cyprus um he also designed the royal melbourne in australia which i don't know how he's getting to australia at that point living in living in california if he's taking a ship over there or what but that was three years later so he went from cyprus to royal melbourne within three years designing two of the best courses ever um he paddleboarded oh. over to world <laughs> <laughs> took a ship over to australia it took him about three years <laughs> yeah he pumped that course out in like two months after his three-year journey he used he used the contours of the ocean to just take him downward oh my god ocean <laughs> yeah so then I mean those are his two most notable ones um, I know he designed some other courses in New York um, and we were talking about that 19th hole in, at Augusta that he wanted to design no. um, so first let's talk about Augusta so I think Augusta started in late 1920s early 1930s um, Bobby Jones and um, I mean they basically they tried to design a course an inland course that would be like timeless and iconic and um, when they first were starting it I think they wanted I think people at Augusta wanted them to redesign other famous holes at courses around the world. And Bobby and Bobby Jones and Mackenzie said, hey, we have this perfect piece of land. Like we can't try to replicate 
famous holes around the world. We have to use our land to make our own holes and make them iconic on their own. Let them stand on their own. Um, so that's what they did. Um, and I forget where I was going with this one, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so one of the... Um, Augusta. Augusta, yeah. One of the original design intents of Augusta was to have a 19th hole. Um, and there was, this was to settle any bets. Um, it was to double down or get even with someone, um, which is an awesome idea. Every course should have a 19th hole. Like a little par three, you can double down on your bets or like, I don't know. Um, so that was in the original plans at Augusta. And um, I think the par three course at Augusta was took that inspiration and kind of went with it. And now they have a nine hole par three course at Augusta, obviously. Um, and they do the nine, the par three competition on the Wednesdays. Um, but that idea from Mackenzie, um, that 19th hole is awesome. Um, Cause after you play 18, you always want to play, Nineteenth. There was actually only two other nineteenth um, holes in America at that time. One was in New York, and one was in Michigan um, at the time. Oceanter. Uh, I think the New York one was in Purchase, New York. I forget what the name of the course is, but shout out to all those who live in Purchase. Mm, Purchase, New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Right as um, Mackenzie was establishing um, just like notoriety as being a golf, uh, top golf course designer around the world, um, finished Augusta with Bobby Jones. Um, obviously, that was one of his best works ever. Um, and they, and that's how the Masters started. Um, it was initially called the Augusta National Invitational. Um, and that started in the early 1930s, two months before the inaugural Augusta National Invitational, um, Mackenzie died, he passed away, which two months before, I mean, you gotta be kidding me. Mm. Um, yeah, he was only, um, I believe he was late sixties when he passed, which is pretty young. Um. And the the way he passed was also interesting. Um, I mean, obviously it's sad that he didn't see any of the Augusta Invitational or any of the Masters, but um, he was getting to become a better golfer, honestly, in his later years. Um, he was always a good putter. He was always known as a good putter, which nobody is, but Alistair was. Um, and he was never known as a good ball striker. Um, he figured it out in his 60s which the great thing about golf is I mean you could be athletic you can be I don't know you can work on your game your whole life can I have a mustache you can, you can have a huge mustache huge eyebrows maybe none of it helps maybe it does I don't know um, but about golf you think the kilt was was helpful or detrimental to his golf game? 
I don't think it hurt. I don't think the kilt hurt. Yeah, and that's something he was known for. Even in the Americas, he would bring that kilt over and play with it on the America courses. <laughs> um, so anyways, he, he was always a great putter, mediocre golfer. Um, he started to strike the ball better in his 60s. He finally figured out his game. Something clicked, and it could click at any time. Still hasn't clicked for me. Uh, hopefully it clicks before my 60s. Um, but when he was 60 years old, he was, he's, he has been shooting in the 80s. And then he started to strike the ball better, and he was started to shoot in the 70s. High 70s, low 80s, which is great for, like, especially an older guy, especially a non-golfer. Um, and the way he passed was pretty tragic. Um, his first sub 75 round, he shot a 74. Um, and he was looking at the scorecard and I don't know exactly what happened. I mean, I don't think anyone really does. His heart skipped a beat. Yeah, his heart might have skipped a beat. He had some sort of palpitations or something where... Um, that very night he passed away, um, with, with heart troubles. So some people say it was from his 74 and some people say it was from, you know, I don't know, being upper sixties and just, you know, a sign of the times, but yeah, yeah, stressed about money. He was, I mean, at that time, a golf course designer is not super affluent. Um, so he actually... He was actually pretty stressed by my at the end. So, yeah, it could have been any of those things. But interesting that it happened on that 74, the night of the 74. Indeed. The night of the 74. Oh. Really passed. Uh, pour one out. So Tim, I know that you said you're waiting for kind of your uh, waiting for it to click for you. It clearly clicked for for Alistair, you know, before he before his heart clicked. Um, but what was it that that clicked for him? What did he figure out? Um, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I, you know, once I get it to click. I'll let you know. If we if we knew, we'd all be better golfers. Exactly. That's a great thing about golf. You can be chasing it your whole life. You know, you can always improve. He shot his best right before he died. Mackenzie. Crazy. It's also the worst thing about golf. Yeah. Yeah. Also the worst thing. <laughs> right when you figure it out, you croak. <laughs> There you have it. That is the story. And these are the Lynx stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the Lynx Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcast Network at the Stories Pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly.
Uh, well, Tim, that Tim, was uh, phenomenal. That was yeah, perfect. That was fantastic. I'm shit faced. <laughs> I hope you are. So I'm reading these. I'm reading the chat right now. And I I don't understand a single thing that was said. <laughs> uh, that was it. Sh- chef kiss. That was uh, was prior. Uh, never mind. Prior to the period, quick. <laughs> God bless you. Say again. Say again. <laughs> Come in, Red One. <laughs> this is great. Oh my God. <laughs> and some of this will leave, but this is also why we have had <laughs> Yeah, that's why. Uh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> and then you kept going. <laughs> uh, oh, fuck yeah! All I right. like where you were going with that, Pat. But, oh. Yeah, somehow I was able to influence their fumbling. <laughs> 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 And so, had... <laughs> are you King? Are you King Kong? What the fuck was? That? <laughs> it was so loud. Mike. I was loud. Yeah. Just, yeah. just mute next time when you get up and <laughs> smash the door. <laughs> Came in like the Kool Aid Man. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> I live in an old apartment with loud doors. Oh man! They're all closed uh, at the same time. Sorry, and why don't you just run that back? And uh, your cob fellow is uh, Harry Colt. Harry Colt, that's right. Friend of me. Right. Run it back with the McAllister. with the Al Woodley crew. So, <laughs> and now there's a third. There is a third. In the Ozarks. There is a third. Yep, it's in the Ozarks. Uh, Southern Missouri. Um, it's a Tiger Woods design course. Uh, <laughs> I think it's called, like, um... Fuck off. Sorry, Tim. The uh, chat, the chat was going, and I told Pat he was joining the Blue Man Group. <laughs> Some of this is lighting. Oh, I see. I see. Fucking blue. <laughs> oh my god! Hey, what's going on? With that blue lighting. Like he's got a fucking black light on his top of his computer. I didn't. Yeah, but if you were really good, well, yeah, that's true. If you knew you were good and then you slowly got worse, like that would kind of stink. Oh, come on, is my video fucking goddamn? It. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mic is hot, so yeah, uh. it happens every fucking time. Oh, God. Fuck it, we'll do it live. Restart <laughs> my computer like four times. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0.